I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Megan Greeley is a queer writer, editor, performer, and director originally from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. She joined me to talk about her solo show-turned-novel, Jawbone. In this conversation, we talk about the origins of Jawbone, her process of adapting a play to a novel, her theater origin story, and much more. Jawbone is available at your favorite bookseller right now. Here's our conversation. So, Megan, thank you so much for joining me. We are going to be talking about your novel Jawbone. And I want to get to the novel, but I want to talk first about the history of, of this this novel, both as as a as beginning as a piece of prose, becoming a, a, a stage show, and then becoming a novel. Um, tell me first, what is the elevator pitch for Jawbone? Uh, it's about a woman who has uh, shut herself away in a cottage by the sea, and she's recording a submission video to go to Mars uh, to be one of the first people to colonize the planet. Um. But she's having trouble speaking because uh, her jaw was recently wired shut. Um, at the beginning of the novel, we don't know why. Uh, and uh, in the process of trying to record this video, she's um, sort of unpacking in her head because she's unable to speak uh, the complex relationship she had with her previous uh, roommate and the um, queer emerging feelings that she has for this woman. Hmm. What I mean, uh, uh, you know, before we get into you know how it how it became play, um, what what was the impetus for for this particular piece? Um, it kind of came in a bit of a fever pitch. Uh, I've written fragments of the piece before without really knowing what it was, and it started, I guess, sort of in a in a creative nonfiction place because I was having complicated feelings for a friend of mine without really understanding what that meant because I, at the time, didn't really understand that I was queer. I grew up in a small town in uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, 
and um, didn't really grow up with any uh, women that I knew who were queer. I heard whisperings about the possibilities of that as I was growing up, but it wasn't a thing that I was really exposed to or saw. So I didn't have any models uh, to really understand the feelings that I was having. Uh, and I was in a straight relationship at the time. And um, I think that on some level, I was trying to write this piece so that my friend, once once I gave to them what was, you know, a, by all on the surface, a, a work of fiction, that they would understand on some level that I had feelings for them and sort of let me down easily. And so that was sort of the beginning of the piece. And uh, I wrote it intuitively, almost without really planning what was going to happen or where it was going to go. So I don't actually remember a lot of the process of, of writing it. It was almost like, I don't know, giving birth to something that was already formed, I guess. And uh, that was the original draft. And then, I mean, it's it's gone through so much work and so many revisions since and uh, has had many different lives. But that that's how it started. Um, and did you give it to this person? I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, they they fell madly in love with you, and uh, everything uh, was rosy and sunny. <laughs> well, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, you'll have to read my next novel. <laughs> ah, of course, yes. Um, it is it is always interesting, uh, because you know, especially in the time that we're living in, um, queer identity is is something that some people seem to feel is up for debate, um, and yet. Somebody as such as yourself who grows up in a town and doesn't have a lot of examples of or any examples of of queerness um, can still will still find themselves uh, 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 being queer. And there's nothing we can do. There's nothing that anybody can do to stop that because that's just how people are. Yeah, I think that it's really it can be confusing for young women because there's uh, a different expectation uh, culturally and socially about how young girls should behave. Uh, we're taught that it's it's quite normal for girls when they're close and they're friends to hold hands and to kiss each other on the cheek and to be affectionate and physical with platonic friends. Whereas for men, they aren't conditioned in that same way. There's, I think, a shame that is uh, taught to young boys around physical affection with other other young boys, and then as they grow older, other men. Mm-hmm. So it's it's perhaps because of that. Uh, murky as a young girl to understand what are platonic feelings and what are romantic feelings and sexual feelings. Mm. I think that, that can be really confusing when you're <laughs> when you don't necessarily have the same stigma that uh, young men unfortunately have about um, the the boundaries of of being physical. Yeah, absolutely, and it's something that happens really quickly with 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 boys. Like uh, it's all well and good to, uh, to 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 cuddle with your father when you were a baby, but as soon as you are uh, after a certain point, it's like no, 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 we don't do that. And there's a lot of there is shame that's put on by the family a lot of times, so it can be it can be very hard that way. Um, you kind of mentioned how in a small town there were sometimes like whisperings, which is the interesting thing that small towns are really good at um, yeah. whisperings about. I mean, if you ever want to, you know, I've I've lived in small towns, um, and everybody knows your business mm-hmm. or thinks they know your business. Um, and you grew up in a small town. Um, as far as, as far as like, uh, growing up in that small town, um, uh, and what, what, 
what kind of what kind of pressures were you because you were in a straight relationship at the time that you were reading this thing or writing this thing um what what kind of pressures did you grow up with uh in that town um not really a lot of pressure from my family to be honest um my family's pretty pretty open uh and they've been really supportive of me um but i had a lot of inherent shame built in i realized as an adult i didn't really come out until i was around 29 and uh my life totally changed when i turned 30 i, I really came out um and uh I realized that I, I had all the shame that I didn't realize I had. I was, you know, I lived in Toronto for uh, years and years at this point and was working in, in theater and playwriting and had so many queer friends, um, you know, was sort of immersed already in the queer community uh, by virtue of the, the people I've surrounded myself with, my community. And so I never thought that I would have this sound. Um, these homophobic feelings built in about myself. Um, but I only started to unpack those feelings once I came out because I really had to give a hard look at myself and my life and say, why did it take me so long? If there is nothing clearly in my way that I can identify um, other than I was in a very, um, one of my first relationships that I had when I was still you know, a teenager in high school, I was with uh, a man who was who was very religious, and uh, I think I still carried some some shame about uh, queerness from that. But otherwise, I, it's kind of hard for me to pinpoint why why it took so long. You know, I, it's something I'm still hmm. trying to figure out. You know, years later as an adult, why 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 why? <laughs> and I guess that a lot of this book is why mm -hmm. that in question. Is that it was was the 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 fact that it took so long was that part of the shame? Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. Mm. And I think it was it was just deeply repressed. You know, I um, I didn't even know it was there. I think that uh, being queer and stuffing it down so deeply and so for so long has created a pattern in my life wherein I I don't um, things don't bubble to the surface very quickly for me. It can take a long time, and it will be a while before I begin to uncover feelings that I am having. Um, <laughs> it's it's an unfortunate side effect of uh, repression. You know, you learn to like stay a bit down in there. So, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I was I was uh, I was raised uh, much like that early relationship of yours in a very religious household uh, in a very uh, uh, evangelical church. And uh, we were really, really, really taught uh, repression. And that is stuff that takes ages to undo. It does. It really does. Even if you think it hasn't affected you mm -hmm. and you think you've sort of escaped that mindset and worldview without any kind of scars or, uh, you know, ramifications carried with you for the rest of your life, you will. You, you definitely will. Well, yeah, because there are lessons. A lot of times there are lessons that are taught at a really early age. And so they <laughs> get in at a foundational level and you don't quite realize how deeply those roots go until you start to to, to come up against them and then it takes so much more work to like untangle them yeah absolutely I think that's really true now for jawbone after this this initial uh, uh writing of it um what made you want to keep pursuing it and what made you decide to turn it into into a play um 
I felt very attached to it in the beginning uh, for personal reasons. But then as I continued to work on it and examine it from an arm's length, I began to realize that I was writing a work of fiction, a short novel, because, you know, even though this started in a place of nonfiction, so, so few details, if any, are, are actually rooted in reality. And in fact, I don't, I don't know if I would ever, I was joking earlier about my second novel, but I don't know if I would ever pull from, from life the way that I did in that again. And, uh, you know, even, I, I think every piece of fiction is kind of a cliche to say, but there's always elements of nonfiction because writers are just pulling from their lives and their own experiences. But, um, yeah, so I started to realize that I was writing something that was bigger than a letter. And uh, I started to add to it and um, explore the character a little more, explore her backstory. And then I was doing a playwriting unit with Nightwood uh, Theatre in Toronto there, right from the HIP program. I had a cohort of playwrights. I had a play in development. And uh, I was going through a rough time in my life and my um, straight relationship. And I uh, went to Florida for a little while to spend some time with my family uh, to work on a play. I had a deadline. I think it was February I went down there um, a few years ago before the pandemic and uh, planned to you know work on the script for a month. And I got there and um, there was a gun in my play and the plot couldn't really advance without the gun the way that I had written it. And I got to Florida shortly after the Parkdale shootings. And of course, in the state, uh, you know, there's there's gun violence. There's a lot of coverage on gun violence or there was at the time. I think Mm -hmm. sadly now it's it's become much more commonplace. Um, But the the news circuit at the time was was the news cycle, I should say, uh, was about the shooting constantly. And I was watching these amazing high school students on the news who were becoming activists right before our eyes and advocating for um, stricter gun regulation. And I, it gave me such complicated feelings about bringing another gun into the world, even a fictional one, uh, because I think we have so many depictions of violence on screen and even on stage sometimes. And I just was wanting to move away from that. So I emailed um, Andrew Donaldson, who was running the program at the time at Nightwood, and said, you know, I'm really stuck with this play that I'm writing. And uh, she said, what do you what do you want to do? Do you have anything else you want to work on? And so I didn't. Um, but I had this piece of fiction that I've written, and I was sort of panicking about what I was going to move forward with. So I pulled out the file and added a bunch of stage directions and sent it off to her. And uh, she emailed me back and was really excited about the piece. And uh, I started working on that instead. So then started developing it for the stage. Uh, So that's how it started. And that's where it went in its next life as a, as a play. What, uh, what, I mean, as far as like turning something that was written as prose into uh, changing it for the stage, what lessons did you learn about the piece when you were when you were making that transition? Um, I learned well, I learned a lot of things along the way. I'm really fortunate that uh, I've had so many eyes on this and so much dramaturgical support for the play in that um, 
in that playwriting unit. And then later, you know, I got, um, uh, I, the play went into into development with white rooster theater in St. John's and, um, a student at, uh, the university of Calgary, um, uh, decided to direct it for their MFA directing, um, uh, thesis, I guess. So a production happened in Calgary, a production happened in St. John's and I got to workshop the piece for both. And then I actually performed in the version that happened in St. John's. And so I think the most valuable thing I learned from this whole process is that I will never write another solo show, or at least I will never perform in one because I found the process so deeply lonely. Hmm. Uh, it, and it, it was actually kind of an awakening for me because I was going through a time uh, where I was feeling a little disillusioned with theater and um, it had been a while since I felt really excited about theater. And that was such an important experience for me because it made me appreciate the community of theater all over again. Um, you know, I find uh, I'm working on a novel now and I find the process of prose writing very lonely. And I've always been so lucky as a writer for the stage that there's always the promise of community at the end that I'll get to sit around a table with a bunch of actors. And as an actor, I also perform. That's one of my favorite kind of jobs to get is to be an actor in the room as a playwright is working on their piece and uh, trying to develop it and bring it closer and closer to the stage. Uh, so I'm really fortunate, I think, that this piece taught me that because it's uh, it's lonely to be up <laughs> there on stage and have no one else's energy and no one else's uh, abilities to draw from. Uh, and it's also a very lonely piece in a way. It's about a woman who's like alone and, and lost and her brain is sort of floating through the cosmos. And so we performed it at the Geo Center in St. John's, which if any listeners have ever been there, it's it's really an extraordinary building. It's under the it's underground uh, on your way up Signal Hill in St. John's. And there's a, a large room there where um, I think they've, they've hosted weddings there and stuff. It's kind of an event room. But the planets are suspended from the ceiling. It's a very high ceiling. And uh, there are these giant, giant globes of the solar system. And uh, we had an amazing lighting designer named uh, Bob Stamp. And he actually made one of the large planets glow red during the production. And uh, I just remember standing on stage and looking up at this big red planet in the blackness in front of me and everything else was dark and just feeling like I'd never been more alone in my life. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was a, a good takeaway for me. Because mm -hmm. some people really, really thrive in that situation. And but it is it is. For me, as somebody who's performed solo before on stage, that's not the only part. It's like going to the theater, leaving the theater, all of this stuff like before and after the show. So for me, that's the most lonely part. Totally. There's no one in the dressing room with you. There's no camaraderie. You don't get to joke with anybody. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't enjoy that part of it either. Um, and I love performing for an audience. You know, I've never... I've never felt stage fright, really. I, I love um, love being in shows that even break the fourth wall. I've always felt really comfortable in front of an audience. But in that scenario, not it was just different. I <laughs> think it was mm -hmm. just different. Yeah. 
So how long did you have that in your back pocket before you decided that you wanted to try to turn it, like go back to prose with it again? Um, so that production happened, I think, in 2021, uh, maybe in the fall of 2021. Time's a bit hazy since 2020. Um, but uh, yeah, it happened in the fall of tw 2021. And then I got really good feedback on it. I had a good run. It was... Um, couple so shows were sold out and uh we got you know people sent us amazing messages about how much they loved the show um and when I say us I mean the creative team because I was really lucky that I had them to make me feel less alone even if I was up there on stage alone and uh Mallory Clark directed the piece they were an amazing director for it um but one of the one of the uh, messages that I got from a few different people that said a similar thing was I wish I had the script in front of me so I could have followed along um, because they said there were so many images in it that uh, stayed with people and they wanted if they heard a sentence they wanted to read it again and I thought that's really interesting because I I think its strength is not actually on the page I think it's or, or not on the stage I think its strength is on the on the page um, so I don't know if the process of seeing it live and having a live audience brings anything more to it than if someone is just reading it privately to themselves and uh, their imagination is able to visualize this world and, and what is happening. So yeah, I did sort of go back and forth, but I, when it came down to it, I, I felt that it started as prose and ultimately, even though I'd you know worked on it a bit and had stage directions and everything, at, a, at its heart, it was still prose. Hmm. So that's the uh route I decided to explore uh publication in and I sent it to Radiant Press because I knew that they uh published some small works, uh, uh some shorter pieces. I know that um uh they had previously published Nicole Hadupis's Tiny Ruins. Uh, and I met Nicole here in St. John's through Riddle Fence, the literary journal. Uh she was on the board while I was an editor and uh then later worked as an executive uh, director for for a while so uh, yeah her piece tiny ruins is quite small and i thought oh well maybe they're open to novellas and shorter work so i'll send them something and yeah they took it on hmm. well in terms of like taking it from you know it's gone from it went from prose to theater and then back to back to prose in the form of a, of a short novel um what what had you learned from the stage show that you took into adapting it as as a novel sure um something that i think helped uh being inside it and performing it and giving voice to multiple characters was how to flesh those characters out further when i was working on the the draft the manuscript with um with radiant and my editor was paul curlegy who had amazing notes for me and um, I added, I think, about 7,000 words, possibly, to the original manuscript. It didn't double in size, but almost, not far off. I think it was originally 13,000 words or so when I first sent it to them. And so um, I added more scenes with the unnamed roommate and with uh, Anatoly, the friend. And I feel like I, I knew them better because I'd lived in their bodies for a short time, you know, on stage and tried to bring them to life. 
And so it was definitely helpful in that way. I think that acting classes are always helpful for a writer, <laughs> no matter what, even if you want to write playwriting or do playwriting or write prose or write poetry. I think that embodying characters and learning how they speak and thinking about, you know, how they walk and how they move and how they see the world is just so endlessly valuable. And so my uh, education didn't start with writing. I, I did a BFA in theater at um, Memorial University, the Grenfell campus in Cornerbrook, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, which I actually grew up in Cornerbrook and then stayed there, you know, to do my undergraduate program. And so I'm really grateful that I started in acting because I feel like it, it taught me a lot of things that if I just jumped right into writing uh, and focusing on that, uh, that alone, I would have um, missed some important experiences that I had and some important things that I still channel through into prose writing when it comes to character development. Had you had you written a lot previous to to Jawbone? I had, yeah. I've written, I think, now I'm going to write plays. And I think by the time Jawbone happened, maybe had seven staged. Um, uh, yeah, so I'd written a fair bit of, um, done a fair bit of playwriting, but I'd also had prose published, like short stories and stuff. Not a lot, but... Every now and then I write a short story and send it out and or a poem and send it out. So, uh, yeah, and I, I've been writing since I was a kid. Um, when I was really young, probably around eight or nine, I was diagnosed with pretty bad seasonal allergies. I was out one day um, in our vegetable garden and both my eyes swelled shut. And my parents brought me to the hospital and then they, you know, got me an allergy test with a specialist. And I was really allergic to grass. And uh, kind of, I'm still allergic, but I've grown out of how severe they were when I was a kid. But I spent a lot of time indoors in the summer. And uh, one summer I wrote a novel, uh, sort of a fantasy novel. Um, and I don't really remember what it was about. I know that there were talking bears in it, uh, but it was called The Golden Compass. And I loved that name. I thought it was such a good name. And then, of course, a few years later, I discovered that's the name of an excellent novel by Philip Pullman. Which actually went on to become one of my favorite books when I was a kid, but uh, yeah, I was I was upset when I found out that one <laughs> author published a book called The Golden Compass first. Um, now you mentioned you mentioned you know the the the, the writing uh, as a kid. What what first drew you to the theater? Um, hmm, good question. I. The first time I ever remember performing was, I think it was in grade two, and we had to um, reenact this fairy tale kind of folk story. I don't really remember what it was about, and I was an awkward kid. I was I didn't have <laughs> the greatest social skills, and um, I was really shy, uh, sort of debilitatingly shy, and. Uh, I wanted to be the, I think it was the mother in the story who was like sort of the female lead. And I didn't get cast as that. And I was disappointed. They cast me as the grandmother. And uh, we didn't really rehearse it. It wasn't like a play. It was just like a, a reenacting and you'd have a few lines and hopefully you remember them, whatever. And then one night we had to perform it for our parents in the classroom. They invited everybody and they came. And I remember at home beforehand me saying like I'm being 
I'm playing a grandmother and my parents helping me sort of dress up for that and find clothes that might like age me. It was a little kid in grade two. I went in there looking like 80. And um, I remember that when we were doing the piece, um, I don't know why I made this decision, but in the moment as the grandmother, I decided to pretend that I was deaf, that I was hard of hearing um, because I was elderly. And it got such a laugh from the parents in the room. And I just kept doing it. And I'd never received that kind of laughter before for being funny. And it was just such a delicious feeling. I remember feeling as a kid like, mm, yum, I want more of this. Uh, so that's the first time I remember performing in front of people. Uh, but then in the town where I grew up, there was a program uh, through Theater Newfoundland and Labrador called TNL Youth. Uh, and it was a, a really big youth theater program. I think at a certain time when I was there, there were over 100 students uh, of all ages. And we would do theater classes every week and learn about different parts of theater. You know, we would do improv and learn about um, projection or sometimes we learn about technical things, too, with, uh, you know, how to, how to stage manage. We learn a little bit about lighting and that sort of thing. Um, primarily it was for acting, though. Um, and so when I went into grade seven, um, I went from my elementary school to junior high and uh, met a whole new group of kids that I hadn't gone to school with before. And uh, a group of really artistic kids, and a lot of them were in TNL youth. And um, I, I remember being interested in it, but I, I grew up near the mountains, so I was skiing on the weekends and, you know, wasn't available to to go to the class when when they had it but then by grade nine i became really interested in in what they were talking about with tnl use and the productions that they did there was always an annual show and so i stopped skiing and started going to tnl use and i i loved it i loved uh, performing in front of people and uh, i think this happens a lot that people who are really shy acting sort of helps them come out of their shell I'm still a little shy, I guess. I wouldn't describe myself as quiet anymore by any means once I'm comfortable. But um, yeah, it, it really opened me up to um, uh, a new, I wouldn't say version of myself, but a part of myself I didn't know that was, didn't know was there. I, I learned that I really liked storytelling. And I guess that's something that's really linked to um, writing for me. I, I like telling stories and I love listening two stories i uh some of my closest friends are amazing storytellers and i just i love to be entertained hmm. so um yeah that's where that came from i guess now you know a lot of people they they do they do theater when they're kids or teenagers and they'll join like a group and they'll do some stuff but not everybody decides that that is going to be something that they do that that's going to be the thing that they do that's going to be the thing that's like the defining thing that's their career or, or whatever that becomes. At what point did you decide that that was going to be your main thing? That theater, whether um, being a writer or a performer or an artistic director of White Rooster Theater, that that kind of thing was going to be your, your life? Um, I knew pretty early that I wanted to do something in the arts, even if I didn't know what it was. Uh, you know, once I passed that, um, childhood stage where everybody wants to be a marine biologist or a pediatrician. Um, if I once I realized that 
I did not want to be either of those things, you know, as I actually learned what those jobs might be, not just a fancy word. Um, uh, I knew it was going to be something in the arts. It was just a matter of deciding what. I was also really involved in music when I was a kid. And um, I thought for a while about studying music, maybe studying piano, uh, maybe studying French horn. But um, I reached a point with the French horn. I'm just tired of carrying it around. It's such an awkward <laughs> instrument. I love the sound of it. But um, which is actually something that I I had, a, speaking of repression, a repressed memory recently that uh, I was introducing myself around the table um, of other playwrights and doing another playwrights unit with Poverty Co., uh, through which I got a show in development. And we were sort of all introducing ourselves and talking about our lives and our interests. And I said, you know, I considered being a professional French horn player when I was a kid, but made this joke, you know, I was tired of carrying it around. And I went home that night and I hadn't planned to say that I was tired of carrying it around. It just sort of um, came out of my mouth. And as I said it, I just sort of mimed holding this thing. And I had a memory that night that when I had left band practice one night when I was in high school, a friend of mine uh, who played saxophone, we were trying to take a shortcut through around a pond in uh, Cornerbrook where I grew up. It's called Glenmerlin Pond. Uh, and it was, you know, late fall, dark, really early. And so we were trying to um, cut through there to, I don't know where we were going, trying to get somewhere. And a man chased us through the woods. And I remember hating that I had this instrument in my hand and it didn't belong to me. It belonged to the school. We had to rent them out. And I, I just wanted to throw it away so I could be free to run. And um, there was something about that memory that uh, I found really interesting that I'd forgotten completely about that until I um, mimed having the French horn in my hand again. Mm. Um, but anyway, the dark story for not a very dark question. But uh, <laughs> and we were fine. The man did not did not catch us. Um, so uh, yeah, I I thought about music and I thought about. Um, theater. I thought about creative writing, but there was already a theater program in the town where I grew up, and I knew a lot of people and looked up to a lot of actors who'd done it. And um, yeah, it was just the thing that excited me the most. So I decided to pursue that. And so it was like one of the one of the other music or theater, and then eventually just theater. Yeah, it, it was going to be one of them, and then theater was just the one that I felt the most passionate about at the mm. time. And my, mm. I'm very fortunate that my parents uh, were never, ne never tried to stop me from pursuing the arts. They, they always really believed that um, the most important thing was to be happy and mm. that if I wanted it enough, I would make it work uh, in my life. And I feel very fortunate that in some ways I couldn't have picked a better time to pursue my dreams because the economy was so bad anyway. Uh, nobody, nobody has a good job <laughs> that is like, you know, we're all gig workers now. No one has a stable job with a pension anymore. We jump around jobs a lot more. So, you know, it's not like I went into the arts when everybody else in life was getting like a good, a good <laughs> job and working towards retirement. Right. So, you know, the, the economy uh, really, I guess, you know, works out for me in that way. <laughs> I hear you. I'm glad about there. Um, but I think there's also a part of, of uh, my parents encouraging me to follow my dreams. I resented as a young, uh, a young adult when I was struggling in Toronto, oh. trying to make ends meet because my parents are 
my mother is a retired teacher. My father is a retired police officer slash um, he was in uh, municipal politics for a while. So, you know, they, they don't come from artistic backgrounds. So I remember one night on the phone with them when I was living in Toronto uh, saying, like, why did you let me pursue this? And like, if you, you didn't know how hard it was going to be. Of course, you let me do it. But you just didn't know. <laughs> so they just couldn't relate. Like I was talking to um, a painter that I knew once whose uh, daughter was trying to figure out what she wanted to study in school. And the painter was like, I will not let her pursue the art because she knew <laughs> the hardship that her daughter would face. So I think that's really funny um, in hindsight. And I'm very glad that my parents did not have artistic backgrounds and they just let me do what I wanted. Well, sure, because you, you know, you had that moment where you were like, why did you let me do this? But then, you know, eventually, like you decide at that moment, like, am I going to keep doing this? Because a lot of people start out in the arts and then they stop. Yeah, it's true. It's such a hard life. There's so much rejection in it and so much uncertainty and uh, so much emotional turmoil sometimes i think it's getting a little better now we're not we're sort of moving away in theater from this idea that in order to be an amazing artist you need to be broken down first so you can build yourself back up again you know that's that kind of teaching methodology and mindset was still very much in play when i was in university um but I, i think hopefully we are starting to realize that that's not healthy for anybody's um, well-being and trying to move away from that. Um, so, but regardless of, of that, I think that being artists, sometimes you have to really examine the world and really examine yourself and the people around you in a way that you don't always have to in other disciplines. And that kind of hypervigilance can be, it can be exhausting. It can make you realize things you could have been very fine having not realized. Um, so it, it can be it can be a difficult life uh, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. And you have to really want it. If you don't really want it, it's not gonna it's not gonna happen. No, no, absolutely. I know when, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, I, I follow some of the 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 acting subreddits on Reddit and there there's always somebody who's like, I wanna be famous and everybody's like, Well, this is not the business for you. Um <laughs> because, you know, again, it is hard and it takes a yeah. lot of work. And if, if, if your end goal is fame, this is not, it's too hard to get there. And it's so unlikely. Um, you have to want the, the kind of the bare minimum. I want to work. I want to do this work. That's my goal is to do this work and do it well. Um, Absolutely. I have a yeah. friend who's a, she's very funny and has very good comedic timing. She's a, also an actor and writer. And um, a friend of hers who is not working in, in the theater film industry, had, had a, a non-arts job, uh, said to her once, you know, you should be on TikTok. You'd be famous. And my friend said, I don't want to be famous. I want to be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> if I was famous, it would ruin my career. <laughs> right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about, about uh, uh, directing and artistic directing. Now, you directed... Uh, you directed Santiago Guzman's uh, uh, Alter. Um, he's been on the show uh, uh, before. Um, we had a great conversation there. Uh, was was directing something that you wanted to do, or did that sort of fall into your lap? Directing was always something that I wanted to do ever since um, my undergraduate program. So for your fourth year, you do what is called a directed studies uh, class. 
And through that class, you uh, you basically produce your own play and direct it. And uh, there's a, a time limit for it. I think at the time, forgive me, my memory's hazy. It's been years now. <laughs> I'm so old. Uh, but uh, I think it was like 40 minutes your play had to be. And I was having trouble finding a 40-minute play, partially because uh, the summer before I went into my last uh, last year of university, I was working at the Grosmore Theater Festival uh, in Cowhead, which is uh, two hours away from Cornerbrook up the northern peninsula uh, in Newfoundland. And it wasn't, it wasn't really easy for me to access a lot of plays at that time. And I remember deciding late in the summer, okay, I'm just going to write something. And uh, I'd been thinking a lot about um, and reading a lot about uh, cases of uh, prolonged captivity. Uh, there were there was a case that broke that summer. I I can't remember which one, um, whether it was the Fritzels or I don't think it was Natasha Kampucha. I think that had been earlier. But there was a, a case of a woman who had been kept in a basement or in captivity for years and years. And I was reading about these horrific stories and um there's so much discussion about Stockholm syndrome and uh you know the complex relationship you had with this person who is your captor and your private villain but also your only source of survival they're the person you're relying on for food the person you're relying on for water the person you're relying on for every basic need that you have and so that dynamic really interested in me uh, in terms of a, a power dynamic between two characters. So I wrote a play uh, about that kind of scenario and directed it. And I loved directing it so much. And it sort of planted the seed in me that, you know, maybe someday I'll be a director. Maybe someday I'll explore it. And um, then Santiago uh, had become a great friend of mine. We met at the Rising Tide Theater Festival in Trinity Bight. And um, then we went out and tour. He was cast in a show that I'd written and was performing in called Hunger. So we went on tour across the province. And through that, uh, you know, budding friendship we had and and um, as colleagues, he asked me to draft this solo show that he'd written. And so I did. We did it in the St. John Shorts, uh, Short Play Festival in 2019. And... Um, that was just meant to be at the time, you know, a short piece. I think it was about 20 minutes long, maybe 25. And then uh, the Resource Center for the Arts in St. John's and approached him about expanding it into a longer piece that could potentially tour to schools and be a part of their main stage uh, season. Uh, so I was sort of already attached as a director to that. And um, then COVID hit and it was <laughs> delayed a bunch of times. Um, but we got to go back to that project again, and I, I just loved directing it. And I, I also designed that, so that was another skill I learned that I um, maybe had and was really interested in. I'm a very visual person, and I love thinking about the aesthetics of the piece, the visuals that the audience is going to walk away with. Um, so I directed that, and then uh, my artistic partner, Mallory Clark, uh, had written a piece called Mother Skin that they had asked me to be in. It was a two-hander. And they'd gotten funding to do a physical workshop uh, in, I think this is also the fall of 2021, maybe. Again, time is hazy in the pandemic aftermath. Um, 
But um, so I was there as a performer in the piece with another excellent performer. And I remember talking to Mallory on day two. And uh, they said that they were having some discomfort sitting outside of the piece as a director. Uh, They were feeling this urge to be in it. And uh, it was surprising for them because they'd sort of moved away from performing for a while. We're really focusing on directing. And I, it was funny to me because I was having a similar feeling of, I don't want to be in this piece. I want to be sitting outside it and deciding how it, how it looks and what these scenes mean. Because it was kind of an abstract, very beautiful piece. And uh, so we swapped roles and then I ended up directing that show. And it sort of launched me on a path to continuing to direct and uh I've been really fortunate for a while that my directing pieces were ones that I was um, uh, sort of came into as a collaborator in some way. I was working with really close friends and artists that I really knew and trusted. Um, Mallory and I went on to co-write a musical that uh, they just started in and I directed this previous summer at Rising Tide. And um, uh, San Diego show is going to happen again next spring. So hopefully I'll, you know, be... Um, part of that again possibly on tour we might do workshops for it it's going through Atlanta Canada Hmm. Um, but I'll definitely get to re-rehearse it again but I just finished my first directing job where I was basically a director for hire I'd never done that before just was offered a directing gig with people I didn't know and took it and it was such a rewarding process it was different because I previously worked with people artists that I knew really well and had kind of a shorthand with but this was an interdisciplinary piece created by two visual artists, and it featured a musician, a dancer, and an actor, and the two visual artists. And so it was really, really interesting and really rewarding to come into it knowing that I wouldn't have that shorthand and have to take a step back and think, okay, how can I communicate these ideas to people I don't know? Mm. How can we find that sort of common language? And uh, yeah, it was, it was really, really fun and just made me want to direct again. And again and again, yeah. How do you find that common language with people that you that it's like your first time working with them? How what what steps do you take to to get to that point? Um, well, I was talking with Santiago about this actually, um, because he was in town just before I started, and um, I was saying, you know, it's going to be a new experience for me to uh, work with people with whom I don't have this uh, creative background of. Uh, you know, people I haven't worked with a million times, people who don't know what I'm looking for uh, just because they know me. And uh, he has some really great advice, uh, especially when it came to the fact that this piece is created by uh, visual artists. He said, you know, try to speak to them in, in language that they will understand. And with the visual artists, that meant, um, you know, visual language. So I could explain the sort of stage pictures that I wanted. And, um, tried to when I was giving them direction talk about it more visually which also helped with the with the dancer and uh yeah coming at it from a different angle I guess was was really really exciting and really fresh and also Santiago is a smart smart artist that was really good advice now um as you you were the artistic director I mentioned the artistic director of the White Rooster Theater White Rooster Theater um, how did that come about? Um, and, uh, and, and how is it, how has your relationship with theater changed as an artistic director? Uh, great question. Um, how did it start? So White Rooster, uh, 
was um, the company that produced my very first professional play and then several more plays after that. Um, and Ruth Lawrence was the artistic director when she first approached me to produce a, uh, a version of the play that I mentioned earlier that I'd written for my final directing program. Um, I applied to the Women's Work Festival in St. John's with it, which is a, a festival for um, playwrights who identify as, as women or those of marginalized genders um, to work on their pieces with dramaturgs and actors and uh, have workshops and public readings. So Ruth approached me after that, produced my piece, then um, produced several more pieces, commissioned me to write one um, later on. And uh, so I've had a really good working relationship with Ruth and White Rooster over the years. And um, uh, one of the founding members of the company, uh, other than Ruth, uh, Sherry White, is a filmmaker. And I actually, um, she gave me my first film job. I, I started in a, a feature film that she wrote called Crappy. When I was uh, still in school, I was a pretty fresh-faced little actor. And I was so excited because I got to be in a film with Mary Walsh, uh, who was lovely and very patient with me as I was learning. Um, so that sort of began my relationship with the company. And then I moved back from... I was living in Montreal at the time, but I moved home uh, in 2020, in March 2020, at the very beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I always say I didn't move home because of the pandemic. It just really sped up the move. I was planning moving in the fall of that year and came back earlier when things started shutting down. Um, but when I came back, Ruth approached me and said um, she was really excited I was moving home because I'd lived away for 10 years. And uh, she mentioned this possibility of me coming on board with the company uh, with succession planning in mind. And so uh, that was, of course, delayed because of COVID. And then I sort of quietly slipped into the role of artistic associate during COVID and got a bit of experience with uh, the company that year, even though we weren't, not, not a whole lot was happening, unfortunately, uh, because of the pandemic. But um, in the spring of this year, uh, the artistic associate position transferred to artistic director and Ruth is still around. We're doing sort of a slow process of handover, um, but I'm really lucky. Right, Ruth is such a a force in this in the city and in this province. She's made so many things happen for so many people and has launched so many careers with her generosity and her willingness to just take a chance on people, especially young people. And uh, I feel really really grateful for the support of her and her company over the years. And um, my play Hunger that uh, was published last year with Greg Bonner Books is dedicated to her. Um, I uh, went to school with uh, with Ruth Lawrence. Um, oh, and, no way. Uh, yeah. I had the opportunity to, I was a year behind her. Um, I had the opportunity to run into her this past summer. And uh, I told her, I tried to express to her uh, how important she is in Newfoundland. Um, because yeah. every time I talk to somebody who is doing anything, who comes from Newfoundland, who's creating theater in Newfoundland, uh, she's somehow in the orbit of it. Um, and uh, she didn't believe me, um, but uh, I, 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 I think I may have finally convinced her that perhaps she might be an important person, a pillar of the theater community in Newfoundland, because again, there is always a connection with Ruth, with Ruth Lawrence. 
It's so true. And she's probably too modest to ever <laughs> think about that or, or realize it. But when uh, the dedication for hunger was the last thing I sent in to break water and uh, I sent in an email that just said uh, the dedication should read as follows. And it said uh, for Ruth Lawrence, a mover of mountain. And the when I sent it off, the copy editor, Claire Wilkshire, responded to me and said, isn't that the truth <laughs> or something to that effect? <laughs> she's just touched so many lives. I'm so grateful for her. It's true. It's true. She is. Uh, it, it, it's It's always it's a pleasure to know her. She's the epitome of when I was talking earlier about what I love about theater is community. To me, mm-hmm. Ruth Lawrence is community. Mm-hmm. She's just such a community builder. And she is such an important part of our of the fabric of this province uh, in the arts and outside it. She's just a, a community member at the core of whatever that means. Um and yeah, I love her deeply. Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, just as we sort of draw to a close, I want to come back to uh, uh, Jawbone, uh, the novel. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, it's coming out. It, I think by the time this this airs, it will be out. Um, and uh, as far as, as as putting this together as uh, as a novel, what have you learned as a writer about about novel writing from 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 putting this in and, and adapting this 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 prose then play then and back into a novel what have you learned oh that's a good question um learned a lot i'm trying to think if there's one thing that stands out above the others um <laughs> maybe the importance of humor um which is something that i think has always been really important to me as a playwright. Um, I like to try to marry the worlds of dark subject matter and comedy because I think that when we're laughing, um, we sort of tend to let our guard down. And for me, I've always found as an audience member that if I'm laughing before I'm asked to engage with something difficult, I'm a little more vulnerable, a little more ready to accept it. Uh, a little more ready to listen. And so I try to do that a lot. And when I'm writing for the stage, um, you know, try to strike that balance between really getting to the heart of a difficult subject and levity, you know, adding relief wherever relief is going to be effective in order to make the darkness, uh, in order to give more gravity to the darkness and the seriousness. Um, So we strike that balance. And it's not something I've ever thought necessarily about when writing prose um i've never thought about levity in the same way and um i think because i was writing jawbone for a while for the stage i was able to bring some of that back into the prose version and carry that over and realize that this is something i as a writer also appreciate some of my favorite works are works that make me not necessarily laugh out loud but appreciate the quiet wish of them and um uh yeah so i i'm trying to think of an example um i read vladimir last year i'm trying to remember the um author of that i believe she's also a playwright um which it was an excellent book and uh the the writing was just so so sharply witty and uh, i really appreciated that about that piece so uh, yeah i guess the importance of levity (laughs) is a long-winded answer to your question 
Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Megan, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I really appreciate you giving me your time and uh, looking forward to checking out Jawbone the Novel. Thanks so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.